Let's open up to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. There's only four chapters, and the last chapter, four, is only six verses, so we should be able to uh, go through the entire book, Lord willing. Malachi chapter 1. Uh, before we get in, just a little bit of background. We just finished the book of Zechariah. They were coming back from the Babylonian captivity. They're in the process, in the beginning of Zechariah, of building the temple. And the second half of Zechariah, the temple is finished. Now fast forward from about 520 B.C., that's Zechariah, to about 420 B.C. So we're going forward about 100 years from Zechariah. And uh, Malachi um, means literally my messenger. Malachi is a prophet in the days of Nehemiah. Uh, directs his message of judgment to a people plagued with corrupt priests, wicked practices, a false sense of security in their privileged relationship with God. Malachi uses questions and answer type method. Malachi probes deep, deeply into their problems, their hypocrisy, their infidelity, mixed marriages, divorce, false worship, arrogance. So sinful has the nation become that God's word to the people no longer has any impact. And 400 years after Malachi's ringing condemnation, God remained silent. That's longer than our nation has been a nation. 400 years he doesn't speak. And then uh, the New Testament begins with the last of the Old Testament prophets. Sometimes we think of John the Baptist as a, um, a New Testament character, but He's actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. So with that as a background, and um, the last word of the, of the book, if you want to turn, is the, is the word curse. And that pretty much describes the book of Malachi. And um, mediocrity, indifference, no gratitude, um, intermarrying with the Canaanites, the Hittites, they had pretty much reached the bottom. and But it starts off with the Lord um, showing his love for Israel. Even though they've been unfaithful, the Lord is going to remain faithful, even though he's quiet for a long time. So let's dive in. Malachi chapter 1, we're looking at the first five verses, and I would title this, The Love of God for, for Israel and Jerusalem in Particular. The Burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, or my messenger. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains on his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness, even through Edom. Now Esau would become Edom as a nation, even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build a desolate place. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I'll tear it back down. Uh, they shall be called the territory of wickedness. And the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So this idea here 
is a direct quote from, go back to verse 2 where it says, I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. That's through our first uh, take to the New Testament, connect some dots and turn to Romans chapter 9. And picking it up in verse 6, we have this quote from Malachi, what we read And again, what we want to do as we study through the the Old Testament is be able to connect the dots. Uh, This was written, Old Testament, and now we're going to see where it's the fulfillment of it. As God deals with his sovereignty, um, Romans 9, verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. There's a lot of people who are Jewish. Not all of them fear the Lord. Many of them are very carnal and secular. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, uh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as a seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come to Sarah and have a son, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. That's Genesis 25. And then he says, as it is written... Now, this is a direct quote from our first two verses from the book of Malachi. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Uh, For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whoever I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. Now, we could get into a whole sidetrack here with election and predestination. And um, why would God create somebody that hates him? Um, And what we have to put in this verse here is when you talk about um, election, when you talk about predestination, it has to be coupled with the verse that is elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So now is there, the question has to be raised, is there anything that God doesn't know? And the answer is no. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. And having said that, he can elect and predestine, but according to his foreknowledge, knowing way ahead of time um, that Esau would despise the things of the Lord and Jacob would love the things of the Lord. So he blessed and loved Jacob but he hated Esau. My favorite psalm is Psalm 139. And it ends, it's, it's such a beautiful psalm. Where can, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. There's no place I can't go, Lord, that you're not there. He's everywhere. And um, the first time I heard it, I just thought, what a beautiful psalm. Your thoughts towards me are more than the, the sands of the sea. And um, I think it was this morning, I was reading Wisdom for Today, and Chuck actually said, if you go to the, oh, the beach and pick up a handful of sand and just let it go through your hands, consider the beach, 
But then consider the deserts of the world and his thoughts towards you are more than the sand. Now I take that literal. What does that mean? Well, that for you've been on God's mind for a long, long time. And his thoughts for you, the Bible said, are for good and not for evil. The psalm ends with David saying, do not I hate those, those who hate you? Yes, I hate them. That's a strange Bible study, Dwight. You're talking about hating people? Well, there's people that, um, like Edom, have, have this attitude that they're going to prosper outside of the Lord. They've rejected the God of their fathers, and so God has rejected them. Now, he can do this because of his foreknowledge. And so David is right in there with him. He says, I do too. Everybody who stands against you, Lord. Another way I put it in a way we could identify with, I always go back to thinking how people in power, like a teacher, especially a college professor, um, wants to know who the new freshmen are at college who are Christian. And then he'll ask for a show of hands, and he'll say, you're a Christian now, but you won't be by the time I'm done with you. And um, all I can think of is that verse where the Lord says, it would be better that a millstone were put around a person's neck and him drowned in the deepest sea rather than stand before me on judgment day because he's caused one of my little ones to stumble. Now, that's a pretty heavy verse. Instead of Judas Iscariot, it would have been better for him that he had never been born. That's a pretty heavy thing to say, too. So as we, we dive into this, let's just make a simple connection. Let's go back. We've made it through two verses. And um, we have a direct connection in Romans where it says, For it was written. Well, where was it written? Well, it was written in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So we find Paul latching on to that and um, using it. So those are the first five verses, six through, um, six through, all the way through chapter two, verse nine, we're going to read and I'll come back. And the priests have, have gotten to be so bad that uh, people despise the things of the Lord. And, um, well, let's just, it'll speak for itself. Picking up in, in verse 6, here's a question and answer thing that uh, Malachi uses. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. To you, priest, who despise my name. Now, this is literal. They had gotten to the point where they're supposed to be the ones interceding. That's what the priests did. They interceded between uh, the people and God. But they had gotten to the place where they despised what they were doing. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? So here's the question and answer, back and forth. Uh, you offered defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? See the question and answer? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer a blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? The, the idea here of a blind is they were taking, when they were doing a sacrifice, they'd look around and they'd say, what's, what's not useful any longer that we don't need and we don't want? We'll give that one to the Lord. 
So here's a blind sheep. Is that not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Uh, Would he be pleased with you? Uh, Would he accept your favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would uh, not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you. The Lord is unloading on the priests, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands. And from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And um, we're talking about that period of time we're living in right now. We're Gentiles. Cornelius was the first Gentile to be saved. This was unthinkable if you were a priest. And that's why they're sort of cocky in their attitude. We're descendants of Abraham. This is John chapter 8. Um, they were, the whole chapter just crescendos. And they're bragging about the fact that they're sons of Abraham. And the Lord finally put them in their place. He says, look, before Abraham was, I am. And he said, you're crazy. You're not even 50 years old. How could you be before Abraham? And um, they saw that as blasphemy. And they took up stones and were going to stone him. But he just walked right on through them. So that's how bad it has got, gotten. Let's continue on, verse um, 12. But you profane it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. You know, this, this was the, the attitude that was projected by the priest. They were weary of serving the Lord. Now we're told not to grow weary in doing good. Yes, it can get hard, and yes, it can get narrow. Good place for an amen. <laughs> it can get hard, and it can get narrow, and it can be difficult. And yet, we're told not to become weary in doing well. In other words, hang in there. We're in a race. And uh, we're in the race all the way to the finish line. And in these days, gang, the only way that I, uh, I can see maintaining the endurance that's going to be needed in the times in which we live is that you know this book so well, and you're so grounded in it, that it gives you a confidence, a stableness in your head and in your heart. So when you do get weary, you realize, hey, we're th- the dark is just the middle, not the end. And at the end, just, I see the light. And at the end of that light is God's kingdom. And he said, if you're faithful in the little things now, I'm going to reward you later. Just be- because you hung in there during the- this little space and time that we have. And you didn't deny his name. And he says, if you'll confess me before men, then I'll confess you before my Father who's in heaven. If you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. I wouldn't want to be in in these guys' sandals. They said, we're weary. We're weary with with, um, doing this. The Lord's table is contemptible. And you sneer at it. 
says the Lord of hosts. You've, you, you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, and thus you bring an offering? Should I accept them from your hand? Question mark, says the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and makes a vow and sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nation. The Lord is offended. He's offended because they're the Levites of the priesthood, and they are to be the light to their generation, and all they're projecting is, um, this is a drag. Serving God has become wearisome to us, and the Lord is sort of getting things where he's stating his case, and he's going to tell them off, if proper choice of words. And then, at the very, very end, he says, I'm not talking for the next 400 years. And, um, you know, that's longer than the whole period of time of the judges. period of the judges was a 360-year cycle. It went just like this, up and down. And that was the way Israel was. And when they were down, the Lord would raise up a judge, like Gideon or Samson. And then they'd, there'd be a revival, and that cycle went on for 360 years. That's not going to happen here. The Lord is stating his case, and it continues on in chapter 2. Uh, the title above it is, The Lord Curses the Priests. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. And if you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. And I have cursed them already because you did not take it to heart. Not only did they take it to heart, they were completely indifferent. Behold, I rebuke your descendants and spread refuge on your face. That's pretty graphic. The refuge of your solemn feast, and one will take you away with it. And then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my commandment with Levi may continue. Now, the idea of Levi here is you had to be from the tribe of Levi in order to be a priest. And um, he says, my covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave that to them. So the Levites were a tribe but they had no possessions of land. And uh, their portion, and what the Lord gave them instead, was the privilege of being able to be a mediator between God and man. And that's what the high priests did. But you had to be from the tribe of Levi. Uh, And I gave to him that he might fear me, so he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and justice was not injustice was not found on his tongue. In other words, the original Levites were men of integrity, and because of that, he he walked with me in peace and equity. There's nothing more valuable, nothing that money can buy that can give you peace of mind. If you if you can be at peace in the middle of the storm, that's priceless. And um, how many people today have no peace? You know, their, their life is just one of constant mayhem. And um, the Lord promised the Prince of Peace that I'll give you a peace that passes human understanding. I don't care what you're going through. 
I'm there with you. And with that knowledge, that's what the idea that was supposed to be transmitted from the Levite priest to the people, that they had this countenance upon them that, you know, Romans 8, 28, everything's going to work to the good somehow. So, okay, I, I have peace, Lord. Yeah, I don't understand it. I didn't ask you to understand it. I just asked you to trust me in the storm. So what the Levites possessed was this peace. Seven, for the lips of the peace should keep knowledge. And people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger, and this is Malachi's name, my messenger, of the Lord of hosts. Now, that's what he's desiring, what we just read. But the reality is, that's not where they're at. But you have departed from the way, and you have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. That tells me that people watch us. And um, they see how we handle different situations. And they, they want to know if what we have is genuine and real. And that is what was to be projected by the Levites. They were to look at a priest and go, you know, I'd sure like to have that contentment. I'd sure like to have that peace of mind. I'd sure like to be able to have that uh, favor with, with the Lord. But he says, you've caused people to stumble because your, your attitude is just the opposite. Indifference. Um, the table of the Lord is contemptible. It gets worse, not better, <laughs> unfortunately. Therefore, I have made you contemptible in base, verse 9, before all the peoples, because you have not kept my ways, but you have shown partiality in the law. In other words, they weren't just in their decisions with their position. So what we have in these is um, the, the priests in, the, in these verses are repro- reproved, they're rebuked by the Lord for their profanity and their indifference, their weariness. They stare at the things of the Lord. And um, as we get in the 10 to 17, it gets into more detail how that trickles down now to the people. We read in verse 10, um, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. I want you to, we're going to stop right here and go a little bit into that. So I'm going to have you turn to Ezra. Now Ezra is not part of the minor prophets. You need to go back towards the book of uh, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, that period of time, Right after um, Second Chronicles, we have Ezra. So go to Chronicles, and then go right a little bit, and you'll run into the book of Ezra. It's right before the book of Nehemiah. They would have been contemporaries. And it'll give us a little insight of what we just read back in Malachi. So I'm looking at uh, Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, When these things were done... 
the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priest and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Parasite, the Jebusite, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Notice, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is intermingled with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hands of the leaders and rulers have been foremost in this transgression. So they were setting the example. Let's go back and read it again. Malachi would have been a contemporary very close to this period of time. And now we read in verse 11, For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. And they were the ones that we just read in Ezra that were doing it more than the people. So, if it's all right with the, with the priest, it must be all right for the people. And as a result, they were setting that as an example. And we continue the downward spiral. Now, let's read up to verse, um, no, I want to get up to verse 13 here. All the way to verse, hmm, all the way to verse 16. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who, who does this, being awake and aware, and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receives it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. How so? By marrying others, intermarrying with the Canaanites, like we read back in Ezra. And yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Because he seeks a godly offspring. Now let's get sidetracked here as we we talk about, well, let's finish down to verse 16. We'll come back to verse 15. He seeks a godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirits and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for he covers one garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirits that you do not deal treacherously. Go back to verse 15. What was happening was if you marry a Canaanite, you were um, creating a compromise. Um, if you're taking notes, I'd like you to write down Second Corinthians 6, verse 14, and let's make it more applicable to the church. As Corinth <laughs> was so corrupt, they had a thousand temple prostitutes that would come down on the weekends. And, there, and um, Corinth was an extremely sexually immoral city like the USA is today. It is extremely um, getting worse and worse and worse as the days go on and on. But they weren't to be unequally yoked. Why? 
so that the children would be holy and they wouldn't have the characteristics and, and the training of a Hittite or any of the other people that were in the, in the land. Second Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. What does that mean? It means if you're a Christian, you should not marry a non-Christian. That's as simple as that is. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What righteousness is it for a Levite priest to marry a Canaanite woman? And what the Lord was wanting was verse 15 of chapter 2 is a godly offspring. You're not going to get that if you um, um, are unequally yoked with a non-believer. And what communion has light with darkness? None whatsoever. It's one or the other. If there's light, there's light. If it's dark, it's dark. But when you turn on the light, the darkness has to go away. You can't, you can't be both. So let's raise a question. Well, what if I'm already married and I got saved, but my husband didn't, or the husband got saved and the wife didn't? Now what do I do? I'm unequally yoked. Well, that was a question that came up in the church in Corinth. Um, let me use a personal example here. Lyndon Stan, if you're watching, hi. I hope I can use you as an example. <laughs> I'm going to anyway, so I hope it's okay. Stan, Linda played for uh, Stan Holcher for 19 years for her husband. And um, Stan never came around. He's well-respected and well-loved in Appleton as a fireman for many, many years. Uh, Dave Goyke, the pastor in Wapaka, took his place when Stan retired. And Linda somehow talked him into going to Israel, but not because he wanted to go to Israel. Stan always wanted to go to Egypt and see the pyramids. And life dream. And this year happened to be a side trip. We go to Cairo first, see the pyramids, see the museum, which is really worth seeing. And that's what Stan wanted to do. So for him, um, we were talking about just a couple of weeks ago, actually. Part of the deal was if you go to Egypt, you got to go to Israel too. Now, for those of you who've been, two weeks in Israel, fellowship every day, Bible studies wherever you go, people giving their personal testimony. And, and I was talking to Stan and Linda towards the back, back there just a couple of weeks ago. We were going down memory lane. And remembering that for 19 years, she was unequally yoked, but she prayed for Stan. And the Lord used a gal named Rivi Lip, and she lives in the modern city of Megdal, right on the the Sea of Galilee. And um, we sat through a whole day session of the uniqueness of the land of Israel. And that's what got him. It blew him away. Long story short, Stan gets saved. And it's a testament for a godly woman praying for an unsaved husband. So what does the scripture say if you're in that situation? I'm unequally yoked, but I'm married because I got saved and my wife doesn't want anything to do with it, so on and so forth. Well, the Bible has an answer for every situation. And in this situation, Paul addresses it. If you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12 And it's interesting that he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, says. It's the only place I can think Paul says that. In other words, I'm giving you my personal opinion right now. 
It says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, but in my opinion, because it's in the word of God, it is the word of God. Good place for an amen. All right. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So that answers the question right there. Then he switches it around. And if a woman who has a husband who does not believe, and if she's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. This is one of the verses that I point to for children before the age of accountability. What happens to them? Well, and they're covered. I believe that, that um, you know, it's, it's Jonah and Nineveh, the Lord's heart. He says there's, there's 120,000 people that don't know the right hand from the left hand. He's talking about young people under the age of accountability. And um, they don't know what's right and wrong. And the Lord says, I'm not going to judge that. I'm going to have compassion on that. And so we can, we can say with certainty... I believe that all children under the age of accountability are in heaven. And because, because I think the, the book of Jonah is very instrumental with the Lord pointing that out, why he did not want to bring judgment. Uh, but then he says in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. You came home, this isn't what I married, and now you're going to be one of those holy rollers? I don't want any part of it, I'm out of here. And Paul is saying, if that's the attitude of the unbeliever, and he says, I want out of this because I didn't sign up for this, he says, let him depart. And then he says, a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether or not you will save your wife? So the question that this brings up as we end chapter 3 is... Um, to the believers that are born again, you shouldn't even be thinking about dating a non-believer. Um, what if you fall in love with the guy? Or what if you fall in love with the gal? Now you're stuck. And uh, I, if I heard this once, I heard it a hundred times. Well, he'll come around eventually. Maybe not right now, but I know if he marries me, I'll come around eventually. I've been around long enough to see that one bite. And... Um, well intentions, but I'm in love. Yeah, but the word is clear. This is not a gray area. The word is clear. You're not to be unequally yoked with non-believers. And um, we'll let the Lord just leave it at that. Let's read verse 17, the last verse of chapter 2, which says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good. In the sight of the Lord. That's the times we're living in now. Good is evil and evil is is good. And truth is relative. What may be true for you may not be true for me. Well, isn't it nice to have absolutes? I think it's good to have this book. That change is not. Jesus said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's solid ground. I like that. But in the world we live today, well, it's relative. Well, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. That's why you have to die to yourself and pick up your cross. And that's why either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. 
Isn't that a good catchy phrase? Lord of all or Lord not all. You can't say not so Lord like Peter. That's an oxymoron. Not so Lord? (laughs) You can't say it. So we got to spell it all out when we share the gospel with people. We got to tell them what they're getting themselves into biblically. We got to tell them you can't go by your emotions anymore. That change with the weather. Or if you're having a good day or a bad day. You have to go by the foundation of this book that changes not. And the Lord says, if you'll do that, if you'll hear my word and do it, I'll liken you to a wise man who built his house on a rock. Storms are going to come. Hard days are going to come. But you'll get through the storm because you heard the word of God. But if you hear the word of God and don't do it, well, that's these priests. They weren't doing and weren't modeling um, what it means to be a priest of the Lord. They should have a countenance of, of uh, tranquility, peace of mind, peace of heart. Doesn't mean you don't have thorns in your flesh and have tough days and you don't get sick. Uh, because there's some good brothers and sisters in the church, food bugs going around, and they're not exempt from it. And yet, through it all, the Lord is with them. Those are the first two chapters. Uh, the Lord is close um, now to shutting it up, he's laid his case and he's getting ready to make one final indictment. But the first five verses here are going to deal with the two messengers that are forthcoming. All right, so let's read verses one and oh, one through five. <clears throat> Behold, I said my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. Then it switches gears and it says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver You will purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old and in former years. And I will come near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against sorcery. Now let's just stop there. Remember in Zechariah when it talked about the branch. Remember one of the things the branch is going to do? He's going to cleanse the land of unclean spirits. Remember from just a couple of weeks ago? And that's what the Lord is going to do. Sorcery. And um, in the millennium, there will be no demons. We got the rabbit little side trail on, on why there's demons and why there's a hell against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wages, earnings, and widows, and of fatherless, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. All right, who are these two messengers? Well, there's two of them. The first messenger who's to go before and prepare the way for the second one, of course, is John the Baptist. The second one is the messenger of the covenant, Um, But before we go to Matthew, let's connect some dots here. Um, 
When we read when the messenger comes, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, but not at his first coming. When he does the purging, it's really at his second coming. Uh, He's coming not in grace, like he did the first time, not as a redeemer, but as a judge. So this is clearly the second coming of the Lord. And as one who will establish his kingdom and put down the rebellion that's on the earth. Remember that one on occasion he said to a man um, that his, this kingdom was not of this world. Now we can turn to Matthew chapter 11. Now let's just read the fulfillment of this first messenger. So as we're getting to the last couple chapters of Malachi, we're introduced to the man who's going to be the next prophet to speak, and it's going to take 400 years before he shows up. He's the first one. Let's read verses 9 through 15. He's talking about John the Baptist. Let's go back to verse 7. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A A reed shaken in the wind? In other words, somebody with no backbone? No, John the Baptist was a man's man. Matter of fact, he was the greatest man who ever lived. But what did you go out to see? A man who's clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing, they live in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Please connect the dots as we go through the Bible. He quotes Malachi 3, verse 1. This fulfills Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I said my messenger before your face, whom you will prepare your way before me. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, is fulfilled with the introduction of John the Baptist some 400 years later. Then he says, and we're going to come back to this as we close tonight, but assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But then he says, but he who is the least in the kingdom or a born-again believer, the bride of Christ, when it comes to the kingdom age, will be greater than John the Baptist. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. What is that telling us? That all the prophets that ever lived, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, just go through the list, Zechariah, Amos, all of them um, of the law and prophets until John, that's saying that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And then he says, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah, and notice who is to come. Well, wait a second, Elijah has already come. No, he's talking future tense. He says, if you guys can handle what I'm about to tell you, John the Baptist is really Elijah who is to come. And what's interesting about that is when the religious leaders in Jerusalem heard about this prophet down by the Jordan River, they sent out a committee. And they said, who are you? The first thing they said, are you Elijah? He said, no. Well, wait a second. I just read here, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And we know that Elijah already came, but now Jesus is saying he is coming yet. So this is a double, what I call a double prophecy. 
And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I believe only a born-again person can wrap their head around what we're talking about right now. Because those who are not born again don't have the spirit to be able to, as it says here, have ears to hear. And um, let's just leave that there and let me have you... um, we need to go back to Malachi and before I go too far so that we can make an immediate connection. So chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, clearly is a fulfillment of Matthew 11, where it says, as it is written, and then he quotes verse 2. And the second part of it is, uh, again, the Lord coming in judgment. Now let's pick it up in verse 6 through 15. For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your father you have gone away from my ordinances, and you haven't kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? And then the Lord says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and prove me now. This is one of the few places where Lord says, test test me on this one. See if you can outgive me, is basically what he's saying. Says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out on you such a blessing that you won't have room enough to receive it. Now, everything I just read is true. And in the New Testament, the Lord talks about um, these things you should have done when the scribes and Pharisees were bragging about their tithing. And he says, you should have done it. But when it gets to this subject, I'll touch on it a little bit. It basically just says, what you've purposed in your heart to give, give. But the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So if you're going to do it, don't do it grudgingly. Keep it if, you, if you're going to be grudging about it. And it's not from a hilarious, the word there is joyful. The word is a hilarious giver. And uh, that should be the attitude in your giving. Um, I'm going to flip the coin here and say that this abuse, these verses right here are the most misused and abused Verses in the prosperity movement today. And I'm thinking of the Benny Hens and the Kenneth Copelands and the K. Arthurs who have their million dollar mansions that they live in and they exploit this verse. God says, you know, test me. He says, sow your seed faith here to this ministry. And if you do, God's going to open up the doors of heaven. You're going to be so blessed. Go ahead and test them. And, um, you know, it's embarrassing. I think we said last week Kenneth Copeland just um, bought himself a new um, <laughs> golf stream. And he's, uh, he'll probably get work done in one of the, out by the airport where they, they bring these planes in and do the luxury interior out at Gulf Stream. It is a very classy jet. But what kind of message does that send? Well, uh, both sides should be, they should be openly rebuked what the Lord is doing here. And is, is this true, that um, the Lord loves a cheerful giver? Absolutely. But it's used, and um, you need to hear it from this pulpit, that 
there's part of people that call themselves a part of the body of Christ that need to be openly exposed and rebuked for misusing this scripture. Good place for an amen. And, um, you know, this is what we're up against. And it's more prevalent in the bigger cities when we're in the Phoenix area. They have like five or six different Christian TV stations. And one is worse than the other one. And they're, they're all the primarily the prosperity teachers that are on there. And I go, who would want any of this? And yet that's what's being presented and that's what's being projected. And that's Christianity. Well, the culture that I grew up in was anti all that stuff. And um, that was just part of the, the, the 60s culture movement. We knew that our parents didn't have it. And we were looking for something. Materialism wasn't it. So it wasn't a big deal for me to give up everything and go and serve the Lord in a communal ministry. Um, didn't think a whole lot about it. But this is what we today are up against as we look at what's broadcast out there. We've got to explain to people, no, that's not the way Jesus lived. He didn't have a Gulf Stream. <laughs> he came on a little donkey. And he said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. That's the Jesus style. And that's what we need to explain to people, too. That's not what the Bible teaches. Should we give? Absolutely. Somebody's got to pay the heat bill or the things that maintenance, just daily stuff. Let's go on. Verse 11. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that... We will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord, yet you say, how have you spoken against you? And you have said, it is vain to serve God. What profit? Is it that we may keep his ordinances? In other words, what's in it for me? And what we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. Yes, those who tempt God go free. And then there's a complete switch. Um, The people basically in these verses that we just read doubt the character of God. What good, what good is it going to do to live for the Lord? What profit is it in it for me? And then he switches, and in verse 16, he says, but then there's those who fear the Lord. They have a good, healthy, reverence, fear of the Lord. And that word there should be respect of his greatness, of his wonder. Um, I can't wait for you guys to check out uh, that uh, is Genesis History DVD. It is so good. I just can't tell you how good it is. And the photography is just off the charts. And it just shows the greatness of how big God is and how humbling it is. It's like Isaiah. When he, he actually saw the Lord, he says, woe is me, I'm undone. For I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And what he was aware of was his own sinfulness. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live with people around me who have unclean lips. 
He wasn't aware of that until he was in God's presence. I don't think you can muster up humility. True humility comes when a person walks side by side with the Lord, they know his voice, and it's a humbling experience. And what's coming to mind right now is the first time Peter recognized it. Let's go fishing, Peter. No fish. Fished all night. Fish aren't biting. But because you say, we'll go anyway. So they went out, and they had the biggest catch of fish in Peter's entire lifetime. And Peter, an expert fisherman, knew it was a miracle. So what did he do? Face down. He said, Lord, depart from me, because I'm a sinful man. He realized he was in the presence of the Messiah. And it humbled him. And that should be the natural um, response for any of us that walk before the Lord, that we are humbled by his greatness. Okay, and then it talks about us here. We'll use Peter. Then those who feared the Lord spoke one to another. And the Lord listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrances was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. These shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And then you will again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The day he makes up his jewels, God is going to make up his jewels and the church is going to be there. You see, the church is the pearl of great price in the parable. And so the pearl of great price is the church purchased with the Lord's own blood. God is going to make up his jewels and there will be many of them. And it's a very poetic, uh, beautiful way for the Lord to describe his bride, the church, as the day when he's going to make them um, his jewels. And that when you guys are fellowshipping and talking about the Lord, we were talking in the, in the, in the prayer room uh, before we came out, and a couple of the guys were telling us what they did today. They were going around visiting people that were, uh, you know, shut in and homing, nursing homes and things like that. And uh, one of the brothers was saying that they just talked for an hour, hour and a half. And they were just talking. Well, be encouraged, brother, because the Lord was listening. And he was taking it all in and writing it all down. Pure religion undefiled is visiting the widows, those that are shut in. That um, it's a big deal to have somebody show up and talk with them. Pray with him. And um, the Lord is saying, hey, I'm writing it all down. I got a book of remembrances written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate. So when you're fellowshipping with one another, the Lord is listening in. It's all been written down. Brings us to the last chapter. It's only uh, six verses long. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no fourth chapter to the book of Malachi. It is just the end of the third chapter. However, in the English uh, translation, these six brief verses are made a separate chapter. In chapter four, we have a prediction of the day of the Lord and a son of righteousness who will usher it in. The first verse is a vivid description of the great tribulation period. Chapter four, verse one. 
For behold, the day is coming. It's still coming for us. It's yet future for us. Burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming will burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that uh, will leave them neither root nor branch. So verse 1 is talking about the tribulation period when the Lord comes. Verse 2, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, which is a reference to the Lord himself, shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like a stall-fed calf. Isn't that romantic? (laughs) Grow fat like a stall-fed calf. And you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day, this I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Then, verse 4 is a verse by itself. Remember the law of Moses. Now we're closing up the end of the last book in the Old Testament. So in summary, we have this one verse which says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. In other words, the commandments, all 613 of them. Remember them. There are schoolmaster were taught in the New Testament to bring us to understand that we needed the law to understand that we were sinners, that we can't keep it. That's why Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I have not come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. What you couldn't do, I can. And so he lived a perfect life. Everything that the law required, all 613, plus the Ten Commandments, he kept every single one of them. He lived the perfect life. And then the greatest verse in the Bible in Second Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, but then he gives us his righteousness. Bruce Carroll's song, The Great Exchange. He gave me his righteousness, but he took away my sin. Now, it just doesn't get any better than that. I'm out of the equation. If it was up to me to try to keep any one of these laws, we'll, we'll fail in, in any, any of them. So verse 4 is set apart. Remember the law of Moses. And then verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament, we could spend hours on. And we'll just touch on it because we're at our time. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The last word in the Old Testament is curse. Go back with me and let's piece some things together. Let's go to Matthew 11. We were there earlier. This is a double prophecy. When John the Baptist came, People repented. Even the Roman soldiers came and said, what, what should we do? We're Roman soldiers. And they said, don't take more taxes than you're supposed to. And don't take advantage of your position and your authority. That's what he told them. And so as it pertains, again, to John the Baptist, we're told here, this is what John did. There was restoration, turning the hearts of the father back to the children. And the children back to the father. Verse 11, I say to you, among those born among women, no one has risen greater than John the Baptist. 
who is least in the kingdom of heaven. And then uh, verse 14, if you're willing to receive it, it is he, Elijah, who is to come. And so we have a double prophecy. John fulfilled part of this. We were here earlier talking about the messenger that would come. So he fulfilled part of that. But now go to Matthew 17, and we'll pick that up at verse 11. The Lord took Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration, a high mountain, a high place. And Moses and Elijah show up. And as they're coming down the mountain after this miracle that took place in Matthew 17, in verse 10, the disciples were asking the Lord because they were confused about this last verse of the Old Testament. And in verse 10, his disciples ask him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And they're quoting their Malachi 4, verse 5. Again, please connect the dots. So this is a prophecy. And they're saying, why do the, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, that's Malachi 4, verse 5. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming, and he will restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah has come. Well, now I'm getting confused. How, how can he be coming, but he already has come? Now we'll see where the double prophecy fits in. And he goes on to say, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. And the disciples go, oh, now I get it. You're talking. So then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist, who by this time had already been beheaded. And the Lord said, that's what's going to happen to him. So here the Lord is saying that Elijah is coming in the future when? This is where we're closed. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. I hope the Lord comes soon. And um, we're raptured. And as soon as we are, we'll have the two prophets on stage. Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel for seven years. And the two witnesses will come. And their ministry, we're told here, verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses. One for sure is Elijah. And they will prophesy 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. So at the very beginning of the tribulation period, that's the length of their ministry, three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth. Well, we were just there when we were in Zechariah. This is Zechariah chapter 4, the two olive trees. If anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They will have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. That's crazy. Well, go back and read Revelation 7 verse 1, where the Lord causes the winds not to move over the face of the planet, which would interfere with the water cycle um, that is in our weather system. They're getting snow in Chicago here tomorrow night, and we're going to get a little sprinkling. We watch the weatherman. We watch the, the currents. They come in and go. Not during the first three and a half years, because Elijah's going to say, no rain. There won't be any rain. And you say, that's crazy. Has that ever happened before? 
And the answer is absolutely by the same guy. As he said to Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say so. And it didn't rain. James tells us that Elijah was an ordinary man like you or me, but when he prayed, it didn't rain for the space of three and a half years. Now he's going to do it again. And so what we have as we close the uh, Old Testament up, let's go back and just look at it one more time. The Lord has brought us through the book of Malachi. We're finishing the Old Testament. And it ends, unfortunately, with the word a curse, which pretty much sums up the frailty of, of man and his inability to be pleasing uh, before the Lord, apart from being in grace and apart uh, from uh, walking with the Lord. I'm going to contrast that because now we're going to be starting the New Testament. And how does the New Testament end? Not with a curse. The last two verses says, He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And the grace, instead of a curse, what was it closed with? Grace. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And everybody said, Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you that we've made it through the Old Testament. We thank you for your word tonight. Uh, We thank you that the disciples asked inquisitive questions about John the Baptist and and Elijah's coming, that he has come, but he's coming again. Lord, that you have a plan that's going to unfold and nothing can stop it. So, Lord, as we sang earlier with the worship team, help us to love those things that you love and help us to hate those things that you hate, that we might truly represent you correctly in the times that we live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.